0: Hey guys, and welcome to episode number 74 of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining us for another Q&A. And before we get straight into the questions, we just wanted to remind you guys that if you do enjoy these episodes, please remember to repost them on your Instagram stories, tag myself, tag Tierra, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians. Also, if you are interested in our coaching services, you can head over to our website, www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, where we have all of that information. You can also find the link in our Instagram bios or in the description of the podcast.
1: Awesome. All right, Jack. So episode 74, let's kick it off.
0: Cool. So we're starting off with a question that Tiara can really sink her teeth into. And this one says, can you explain a little bit more about ATP and the role of creatine?
1: Ooh, a scientific question, one of my favorites. So I guess, you know, first off, we can just define what creatine is, right? So creatine is a compound. We actually synthesize it in our body, predominantly in the liver, and it's made from the amino acids, arginine, glycine, and methionine. But what a lot of you guys would know is that creatine is one of the most popular supplements on the market, right? And it's actually the most evidence-based supplement and ergogenic aid in the world, which is pretty darn cool, right? So whether you are synthesizing your own creatine, you know, or you're consuming it through a supplement, or you're consuming it through animal flesh, if you are an omnivore, which is the predominant source that most people get it from in the diet, right? what that's going to do is that's going to increase your creatine phosphate stores and its relationship with ATP is that creatine, right? It's known as creatine phosphate in the body. So creatine is attached to one phosphate group. And the way that this links in with ATP is that ATP is like the energy currency system in the body, right? So, ATP it stands for adenosine triphosphate so it's one adenosine molecule and it's attached to three phosphates and the way that that actually gives us energy within our cells is when a phosphate group breaks free from ATP and it becomes ADP, right? But that's how you get energy initially. But the role of creatine phosphate is that creatine can actually donate a phosphate group to ADP to rapidly resynthesize ATP so we can have you know plenty of energy so that's why creatine phosphate you know it's it helps to resynthesize ATP very rapidly within our cells And that's why it's that very first energy system used when you're going through exercise, especially explosive exercise. So imagine if you were to go out into the field and run a hundred meter sprint, right? You would predominantly be relying on your creatine phosphate stores to get ATP to power for that work. But what's also really cool is that creatine its role isn't just in the muscles right there's actually new literature coming out showing creatine's benefits on cognitive function and the brain which is super duper neat because our brain you know the brain uses around 20 percent of our energy at rest so the brain is very very highly active i'd hope that we're all using our brains all day every day right uh so That's pretty cool. So creatine has been shown in some of the literature to increase short-term memory, it increases concentration, and people who actually suffer from TBI or traumatic brain injuries, if they have previously been supplementing with creatine, they generally have more positive outcomes, actually recovering from those injuries, which is really cool. So if you have like a football player or something, right. And they get a concussion out on the field. If they had previously been supplementing with creatine, they actually have a higher chance of recovering from that injury compared to someone who wasn't right. So, But at the same time, uh, because, you know, omnivores, people who are eating the flesh of animals, we get some creatine through the diet. A lot of these benefits, they're a hell of a lot more significant. If like a vegan or a vegetarian actually is supplementing with creatine compared to an omnivore. But in saying that as well, like The dosages for creatine are three to five grams of creatine every single day. You know, regardless whether you're training or not, you just need three to five grams every single day. And generally the benefits are higher in those vegans and vegetarians, just because they're just not eating animals, right? But even then like omnivores, right? We can all, we can all slightly bump up our creatine stores a little bit through supplementation. Yeah, that was a long-winded answer. But hopefully that explains, you know, the whole creatine ATP thing. They, they really go hand in hand. And it is really cool.
0: Mm, yeah. The only thing I'll add to that is a lot of people when they hear uh, us say or anyone say, oh, you doesn't matter when you take creatine. They they think it's a, either a pre-workout or a post-workout mm-hmm. supplement. But the same goes with quite a few other supplements like beta-alanine as well. The goal is to saturate your stores of creatine it doesn't matter whether you take it pre or post workout
1: mm-hmm. yeah that is a really really good point point. and i'm not aware that you know creatine competes with anything for absorption i think there might be some literature to suggest that it might compete with caffeine but it's kind of mixed it's not very conclusive but yeah the main thing is that you're just taking it and mm. generally just choose a time during the day where you'll just remember to take it like jack and i i take mine in the morning, right after my breakfast, I just have a a little bit of water with a scoop of creatine and Jack always has his at night. (laughs) So we just, just make sure it's on that schedule. So yeah, just remember to take it and, uh, you'll be sweet to go, but there are a hell of a lot of benefits for creatine, you know, performance wise, as I said at the beginning, it's the number one ergogenic aid on the planet, creatine and caffeine are the top two, right. For muscular power, you know, muscular strength, endurance, you know, actually building lean muscle mass. And it is really cool to know that it doesn't just stop at, uh, you know, performance benefits in terms of athleticism. It's actually got quite a large role in our cognitive function and our cognitive capabilities. So that's really neat. If you guys want to learn more, I would actually really recommend checking out this Instagram page called Society for Neurosports. They post a lot of really great information and great infographics just on, you know, new literature emerging uh, in the area of, you know, exercise and the brain. So it's pretty freaking cool. But yeah, that pretty much wraps up that science question. Uh, our next question of the day, this one says... What's the best way to figure out what your daily step count is?
0: So I'm not sure if this question is asking how to actually track your steps, which would be with a pedometer. And
1: Dude, I thought you had to actually count them. Like, I thought you actually had to walk around each day and go one, two, three, four. Oh, damn it. You know, I forgot to count them on that walk. Ah! (laughs) Don't know how many steps I did. (laughs) Imagine that. Imagine actually counting your steps in your head. Mm. You have to
0: bring a pen and paper with you.
1: Yeah, you would. Dude, that tally. Wow. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) back to how you seriously count them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, the other alternative would be how do you figure out how many steps you should be doing per day. Mm-hmm. which is the other side of the coin. So, Tia and I both use a watch, which has a pedometer in it to track our steps. So, I have a Garmin, Tia has a Fitbit.
1: Yes, well, technically your Garmin is my old Garmin. It looks pretty groovy on your wrist. Yeah. It's got like this bright turquoise <laughs> watch. It. I like it.
0: <laughs> it does the job.
1: Yes, it counts the steps.
0: <laughs> so, that's what we use. It's, it's definitely a bit better than counting your own steps, that's for sure. <laughs> And how do we determine how many steps we need to do though?
1: Yeah. So that's going to be highly individual. You know, I think the number one thing it comes down to is how much do you want to walk? You know, just how active are you generally on your feet and just what's really, what's, what's your job as well? You know, what are you mainly doing during the day? Do you like, cause most people work during the day. I know COVID-19 is a special circumstance cause more people are at home, but On an average day, you know, like, are you a labor worker and you're always on your feet going up and down stairs, building houses, you know, or are you a receptionist, you know, and you're sitting at a desk most of the day taking calls. So it highly depends one on, you know, how active are you during the day, during your career? And then also just how much do you enjoy walking? Like, for example, my step count per day is on average around 15,000 steps. And it doesn't need to be 15,000 steps, but I just love going for walks. You know, it's beautiful and sunny outside. I've got different walks for different things. (laughs) Like, you know, thinking to myself or listening to a podcast or playing fetch or listening to music. I've got special walk times, you know. So it also depends on how much time do you want to spend on your feet? How much time do you have available to spend on your feet? And uh, yeah, what else would you say, Jack?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would say determines yet yeah, what your goals are basically so there's walking for health there's walking to expend more energy there's walking so you're able to eat more mm-hmm. there's
1: there's walking so that you can walk through the park and sing disney songs we can't forget about that one. Oh
0: yeah that's most applicable <laughs> to me isn't it
1: oh yes <laughs> the little mermaid <laughs>
0: And so, yeah, there's not really a specific answer to this. It just depends what your goals are. So if you're like me and Tierra now, Tierra is a special circumstance, but I just walk so that I can, I maintain some sort of cardiovascular fitness. Mm -hmm. I found that when I do about 10,000 steps versus 4,000 steps, my body fat is lower despite Mm -hmm. eating the same or Uh, having the same rate of gain. Yeah, and despite
1: gaining weight. You know, we took skin folds this morning and Jack's abdominal, it actually went down on your superspinale, I'm pretty sure. And
0: legs as well.
1: Exactly. And legs, man. Because yeah, we've just been walking more. (laughs)
0: Yeah. So there's definitely reasons to step. Mm-hmm. And keep stepping, <laughs>
1: keep stepping.
0: <laughs> and so yeah, well basically what we would say there needs to be at least a, a min- minimum amount of steps that you do per day, mm-hmm. if as if you don't do any other cardiovascular form of mm-hmm. exercise. And I would probably say that is well, the Heart Foundation says ten thousand steps per day. And depending on what your goals are, I think there should be a maximum as well. Like if you're trying to be a bodybuilder and you need to eat a lot of food, then if you're doing twenty five thousand steps per day then mm, yeah, dude, I would kind of question a, that.
1: That is a lot of walking, eh? Wow.
0: And I remember, uh, funnily enough, we got this question ages ago similar to this and we said... it asked like what's the maximum amount of steps we would recommend and we said we said with a lot of disclaiming oh I don't see why you would be doing more than 15,000 a day Mm -hmm. and since then so many people have said oh I'm doing more than 15,000 but like yeah that was just a number guys it doesn't Mm -hmm. really it's
1: it's always going to be individual it's always going to come down to what are you accustomed to you know and the main thing is the main reason why we say you know try to not exceed a crazy step count it's not because steps are in apparently bad or something, moving your body in any way, shape or form, as long as you're not causing an injury, <laughs> doing a terrible squat or something is amazing, right? It's very good for health. The main reason why we say to, okay, Hey, maybe we should pull it back a little bit with that form of energy expenditure is simply because it just might impede your recovery capacity for your training sessions. So if you're trying to maximally induce muscle hypertrophy, right? But you're doing 25,000 or 30,000 steps every single day of the week. You know, you could argue that, hey, that might be dipping into your recovery capacity. Can we just ticker it down a little bit? You know, maybe 15,000 or something. That's still plenty of walking in the sunshine and moving your body. But, you know, you might feel better after, after your training sessions and uh, get stronger and grow some more muscle. So, you'll get the best of both worlds.
0: Yeah. Cool. I think we answered that well. So, we'll move on to the next question, which says, best ways to stay lean without tracking?
1: Mmm, the best ways. What are the best ways, Jack?
0: So, we actually did a podcast with Carl Weber a few weeks ago. And he, he talked a little bit about not tracking. And he actually did a whole competition prep in which he didn't track macros, and he sometimes gets some of his prep clients to not track macros. So, we would recommend checking out that episode with Carl, which is episode number 70. And Carl also has his own podcast channel called Prep Brain, which we'd recommend checking out too.
1: Yeah, it is a very, very good podcast. And he's doing this new series where he's actually interviewing people anonymously, pretty much talking about their prep experiences and post-competition recovery experiences and their psychology, which is really freaking neat. So yeah, prep brain, brain. (laughs) it's a good podcast.
0: (laughs) So basically to get back to the question though, the thing about staying lean without tracking is that being lean itself is difficult in that your body, like hormonally, ghrelin will increase, leptin will decrease. So you're gonna feel hungry and your body is gonna tell you to gain weight. So the whole point of staying lean is kind of resisting that urge. Mm -hmm. And for some people, it will be so much easier than others to stay lean. So like for Tiara, Tiara would probably find it much easier than me to stay lean. Yeah.
1: I also think that everyone has a different idea of, what does lean mean Mm. to you especially someone in general population you know compared to a bodybuilder, we would have very different (laughs) definitions of what lean is you know like a gen pop person sees like some dude on the tv you know with his shirt off and he might have like a very small outline of a pec and two abs and they're Mm. like wow he's so lean or wow look how fit he is and jack and i look at that guy and we're like Man, does he even train? Like, why would they even cast this dude?
0: <laughs> yeah. So obviously it depends on that, but the to get to give you a definitive answer, what if I was to do this, or I think Tiara would think the same, is you need a foundation of mod, uh, knowledge to go with it. So we would recommend tracking for a period of time, so maybe at least a month or two, mm-hmm. and then getting a good idea of being able to say, okay, this is this is this much chicken, this is this much rice, and So if you've tracked and stayed lean while tracking, then you kind of know, okay, my portion sizes have to look like this. Um, and then you can kind of go from there.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like tracking, it's a phenomenal tool, but one, it's a, it's a great thing to do to actually learn the skill of tracking and learn the skill of portion sizes and energy density of different foods, you know, and the macronutrient ratios of different foods. But once you have that skill, right, you don't have to enter everything pedantically into my fitness pal. You don't have to put every single thing you eat onto a scale, you know, the fundamental principles of energy balance, you know, and perhaps, you know, staying at that, at your maintenance calories level, if you are lean right now, or if you're trying to get even leaner, keeping yourself in an energy deficit, right? That still fully applies, you know? It's just that if you can see the numbers right in front of you and it can do the math very easily for you, it's such an awesome resource to have because it keeps you on track. It mm. really, really helps. It takes the guessing out of it right but if you have the skills ingrained there's a hell of a lot of people out there who you know achieve their goals without ever putting anything on a scale you know
0: we got to remember that the body doesn't look at things per calorie mm. It it doesn't work like that and I, I find it funny how i see some instagram accounts which are like oh you might be make sure to weigh your broccoli and asparagus because There's 10 calories difference per 200 grams of broccoli (laughs) and asparagus. But like, who cares? Like it doesn't.
1: (laughs) Who flipping cares? I remember I went through my first comp prep and I didn't weigh things like green leafy vegetables because I'm like if i just ate a kale leaf and a kale leaf is the deciding decision between whether or not i get into comp shape or not like i've got bigger things to worry about like mm. the reason why you didn't get it lean enough isn't because you ate one too many kale leaves <laughs> okay <laughs> So let's let's look at the more important things all right
0: <laughs> but yeah to be fair in prep, we probably would weigh in because if you're knowing you you would eat a thousand kale leaves would probably, probably add up
1: that is true it does depend on the quantity of the kale <laughs> but yeah um hopefully hopefully that does you know answer your question obviously if you've got the skills you're more than capable of you know just looking after your portion sizes eating in moderation you know eating an appropriate amount to fuel yourself Uh, yeah. And the thing as well, like tracking and weighing your food, you know, it doesn't have to be forever and, you know, flex success, their coaching team, they're a very strong advocate of this, you know, like you're not meant to be so pedantic about these little things forever. You know, you're not supposed to be dieting forever. That's why they released their great ebook called life after dieting, because it ingrains you with those skills of, you know, how to live your life without yeah just weighing every little thing you know and thinking about every calorie and every gram like man there's there there are there are bigger things to life but in saying that each to their own because jack and i are in a position in our lives where we do have very specific goals so we do do very specific things to achieve those goals in basically you know the most controlled and evidence way way possible Mm. right and it doesn't doesn't bother us i wouldn't say it takes up any more significantly of my time to weigh my oats, you know, rather than just pouring them into the bowl or something. Yeah. Yeah. And it it aligns with my goals as well. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully that works out. Mm.
0: (laughs) But yeah, over, over one last thing, like over time, I would say that I am definitely a lot more confident at going out. I did used to worry a bit Mm -hmm. into when I used to go out to eat, but now I, I just, I don't mind at all. Like it's just another thing to do. So that and that goes just goes to show as I've gotten more confident at eyeballing things, mm-hmm. um, then I stress less about it. And I think it would be tough for me to not track purely because I would undereat. And mm-hmm. that I found that when we go on holiday, even if there's a buffet or something, I will still undereat because yeah. if I go off my hunger signaling, then yeah.
1: Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're definitely in different positions in that case. Ah, uh, I don't know, actually I, at this point I might be under eating as well, you know, because like right now to reach my carbs, I'm eating 10 to 12 pieces of fruit a day. I think intuitively probably wouldn't eat that much, you know, and I'm still eating a, buttload of just but you might eat, this like two
0: pancakes which is as many as 10 pieces of fruit i might
1: so. yeah i'm not sure i think when it comes to me the main thing is meat you know like it's just sad that like the tiniest bit of chicken only has like 20 grams of protein in it because i'm not i could eat a whole chicken you know and i'm like yeah i feel fine you know i feel good that was probably only like 50 grams of protein right it's like i uh, know that was probably 750 grams of protein i'm like ah <laughs> Okay, Jack. So uh, let's move on.
0: So this next question says, what is your opinion on soy protein isolate powders for vegan lifters?
1: So soy protein, it is a phenomenal source of protein, you know, soybeans, you can make tofu, you can make tempeh, delicious, right? But when it comes to exercise performance and stimulating muscle protein synthesis, you know, uh, the thing about soy protein is that per gram of protein, it is quite significantly lower in leucine compared to whey protein, right? So whey protein per, you know, 25 grams of whey protein, you're going to have close to that three grams of leucine mark. and. For 25 grams of soy protein, you're probably only gonna have around 1.5 grams of leucine. And we know in order to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, each time you have a protein bolus, you need at least around that two gram mark of leucine to actually maximally stimulate muscle protein synthesis. In conjunction, you also need all of the essential amino acids consumed. So, soy protein, it is a phenomenally healthy protein source, you know, and there's a lot of literature out there, you know, talking about the health benefits of soy, you know, especially for like cardiovascular function and things like that. But, soy, unfortunately, I don't believe it's actually a complete protein source. I think it might be low in methionine. And that's why a lot of vegan protein powders generally you do want to have a combination of different plant sources in a vegan protein powder to ensure you're covering all your bases to ensure that you are getting all of those essential amino acids so that might look like something like a combination of soy and pea and brown rice maybe some hemp protein right just to ensure that you're getting all of those essential amino acids you're getting enough leucine and also you're just getting enough protein in total that's another thing as well. So for around 25 grams of whey, right? In order to actually get an equivalent amount of leucine from soy protein, you'd have to consume around 40 grams of actual protein, which would come from around 50 grams of actual powder. So you're actually consuming a lot more powder in that sense to get an equivalent amount of protein and leucine. So. That's something to take into account too but yeah overall it's very healthy but uh if you're going for vegan protein powders i just recommend getting a combination of different vegan uh, plant sources in your protein powder just just to ensure you know that uh you're maximizing those gains
0: Mm. yeah and they're easy to find and affordable as well Mm -hmm. like vpa does a they fortify their ones with all the essential amino acids.
1: Yeah. It's awesome when they do that, you know, like when they combine the different plant sources, but then they'll put in the um, other amino acids too. Like VPA, they have this Protein called Premium Plant, which I absolutely love. Like I've never been a fan of a banana flavor until I actually tried this protein powder. Like it is actually delicious. So Premium Plant, it's do they del- sponsor you? Yeah. <laughs> As a matter of fact, you can use my discount code down in the links below. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, it's freaking delicious. So their Premium Plant protein, it's really good, and it is a combination of different plant proteins. Plus, they've it's fortified with um, all the essential amino acids too. So ticks that big box with a big, big tick. So yeah, it's nice. But hopefully that answers your question.
0: Cool. So this next question says, can you create food intolerances if you eat the same foods every day for a long period of time?
1: Hmm. So yeah, this definitely is a myth, you know, in the fitness industry. You definitely do hear about it, especially people. It's common when people, you know, they've gone through maybe a very restrictive comp prep mm. and they are like, all i ate for 25 weeks was chicken and broccoli and almonds and i didn't eat anything else and now I can't eat like broccoli and almonds anymore otherwise you know I just get I get flared up and my gut starts leaking you know and my (laughs) I I break out and pimples or like something right and I've got intolerance yeah that's the thing you know so I think I really do think this is a huge myth I think Mm. we definitely this would be a really interesting topic to talk about with your dad
0: Mm. yeah so we are thinking of getting my dad on who's a gastroenterologist and Yeah, he'll probably be on soon and we're both looking forward to it. Mm -hmm. But what I was going to say is like lactose is the classic classic example when Mm -hmm. people do become uh, intolerant to dairy because they don't have it for a long time. They stop producing lactase, which is the enzyme that breaks down lactose. And yeah, they, they have trouble digesting it.
1: Mm-hmm, exactly. But man, if you're drinking milk all the time, you know, and eating your yogurt, like it's that feedback loop, right? Mm. If you're constantly putting something into your body, it knows how to metabolize. It knows how to digest. It knows how to properly absorb those things. So yeah, I'm, I'm all up in there. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: The, I can, I might be able to see where people are coming from in that they, they eat like so much potato that... They don't have any amylase left to to break it down.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. That would be the day where you do eat so many carbs. Your diet, like your enzymes are just like not, not having it. (laughs) Oh, that would be hilarious.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We, we did a, a post on TBD on our Instagram about FODMAPs, which is kind of similar to the lactose thing where basically uh, some people can't. Uh, digest FODMAPs Mm -hmm. and they go into the large intestine, the large bowel where it gets fermented and that's why you get like gas and wind, Mm -hmm. uh, diarrhea and stuff. So that's what would happen if you do become intolerant Mm -hmm. and that's why some people are either born with intolerance to things like fructose or lactose or polyols or it kind of develops over time. Mm -hmm. Like a few people in my family have, uh, they, they like wake up one morning and they're just intolerant. Okay, <laughs>
1: okay. just happens. But yeah, and that's the thing though. But if you are eating... A wide variety of foods you know and you're eating a lot of plant-based foods lots of fruits and vegetables whole grains nuts and seeds legumes right you're eating a wide diversity of fibers and your gut is used to that wide diversity of fibers you will cultivate the type of bacteria right and you will cultivate them in larger numbers that actually do break those fibers down right mm. and, uh, and i just
0: want to disclaim that it happens on a more chronic time scale than that. yes i know yeah <laughs> it's
1: not like overnight or something yeah uh but yeah the, the that's that's one of the things you know you when you're eating more food generally your body gets better at dealing with that kind of food right uh it, it can be a huge issue like i'm sure we've all had a terrible case of gastro right mm. and the worst thing about gastro other than just having gastro and just having you know stuff coming out the front and the back you know and the house stinks <laughs> right the worst thing is that it or the just... dog
0: and the human having it <laughs> at the same time
1: <laughs> oh, that was january i will never forget <laughs> jack jack fed himself and our puppy sam a bad a bad batch chicken <laughs> anyway the the worst thing about that is that it just wipes out really a huge amount of the bacteria in your large colon which are used to fermenting all of those fibers you know and obviously our gut bacteria linked into our, our gut microbiome the enteric nervous system you know influences how we think you know our immune system everything right if you wipe out all of that bacteria and then you recover from your gastrin you can start eating solid food again That can be really, really tough, too, because you have to kind of, you know, start building, building that back up again. So,
0: yeah, especially if you've had antibiotics with that, Mm -hmm. which a lot of people have to like bacterial infections don't just go away.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So these will definitely be very interesting topics to talk about with Jack's dad, who is a gastroenterologist and uh, should be interesting. Mm. So we'll certainly write this one down.
0: Yeah. Cool. So this next question says... Can body recom diet be effective or is a bulk slash cut protocol best?
1: Man, this is really relevant. And it actually reminds me of working as a PT and nutritionist at UQ Sport. Remember, we'd, we'd have consultations with uni students all the time and gym members. And this was a common question, you know, they're like, like, what should I do with my body composition and in terms of my diet? Like, mm. can I can I maintain the same weight and just try to build more muscle mass? Or should I lose weight? Or do I have to gain weight? Like, what do you do? What What is yeah. most effective?
0: Yeah, so there are a lot of, it's not necessarily misconceptions, just misinformation about this as well, where people are like, oh, I want to stay the same weight, but like look really different. Or I want to lose 10 pounds and look way more jacked and stuff like that but we got to just going to remember like assuming you are doing it naturally which like 99% of people are mm-hmm. so actually i don't don't quote me on that statistic but. <laughs> maybe it's, maybe it's 98
1: and <laughs> a half <laughs>
0: uh, basically We got to remember that if you're in losing weight it's less favorable for putting on muscle if you're gaining weight it's more favorable for putting on muscle so if you're staying the same weight it's kind of be going to be a little bit in between in between the two it's yeah
1: kind of and yeah but at the same time it depends on your starting body composition so like if you are overweight and you are like a newbie to training right you would actually be in a more favorable hormonal environment if you were actually like losing weight at a at a slow and steady pace while engaging in resistance training. So at a point like that, it would actually, you actually could do some recomp, you know, like you could, you would have the potential to build some muscle mass while also losing fat mass at the mm. same time. But yeah, it really depends on your training age, your starting body composition, your nutrition, you know, like what sort of exercise are you engaging in as well? Are you predominantly doing exercise or are you going out and running every day? Because we know that that's drastically going to impact, you know, your end body composition. Uh, So yeah, those are quite a few different things to consider.
0: Yeah. Other things like coming back from injury, you're going to be able to gain weight and Put on muscle, lose fat at the same time. Because remember, body recomp is gaining muscle, losing fat. Just Mm -hmm. to clarify for everyone,
1: well, I'd say that's positive recomp. Yes, (laughs) I would hope that's most people's goals. You know, you can certainly, you can certainly have recomposition, but definitely Mm. not in the most perhaps favorable way. I don't know. Each to their own. Whoever you can have your body look like however you like. You know.
0: And there are other circumstances where someone who's overweight wants to gain muscle and in their situation, it's not going to be, uh, favorable to gain weight in order to gain muscle. So they're going to have to lose weight and gain muscle at the same time. Mm -hmm. And they will be able to do that too.
1: Yeah. But what would you say? Okay. If, if a client came to you, you know, they've got a decent training age, maybe they've been training two years. They're kind of in that middle body composition where they're not super lean, but they're not like super overweight and they want to put on more muscle size. Should they do a cut or should they do a bulk?
0: It's a very hypothetical question (laughs) yeah
1: but it's a question we get asked all the time
0: yeah so for most people if i think they're into it and they really want to do it then i'll say okay we'll do a quick tidy up first we'll lose some body fat and body weight and then we'll get straight into a uh, surplus and Mm -hmm. put on muscle yeah because otherwise you you'll end up like gaining weight for a few months like i don't know two or three months and then they'll just be to put it simply too fat to continue Mm -hmm. gaining especially if they have um they want to compete
1: yeah so it certainly highly highly depends on the circumstance doesn't it and another thing as well is that like jack said at the very beginning you can't just lose 10 kilograms and then expect to look jacked like you Mm. have to have the muscle under there and a perfect example of this is that people are always saying like everyone has abdominals you know like all you have to do is diet down and get lean enough and you can see your abs like That is so far from the truth, you know? To some people. No, it's... I I just don't believe... Like, they would have had to build those... Abdominals are just like any other muscle group. You have to build them, right? Like, you could... I'm kind
0: of... I'm not with you 100% on this. No,
1: you could say the same thing, honestly. Like, you just have to diet hard enough, you know, to see your striated delts and see your calves. But, like, they're not going to be very impressive. I know someone.
0: I'm not going to say who, but... Like they were eight years old and they had a, a very because big Because they pack. had
1: built those muscles. At they were, eight. They were probably doing like, just like Kyle Weber, they were probably on that freaking trampoline, you know, for hours each day, bouncing around doing, doing somersaults or whatever. But yeah, you have to build the muscle wherever, whether you build it in the gym or build it in gymnastics or something, but... What I'm trying to say is that you can't just expect to lose weight and look really muscly just because you're a low body fat percentage. Like Mm -hmm. you have to have the muscle on you already, so...
0: Yeah, I think abs are a bit different though. No.
1: I've been super duper low body fat and I've never had abs because I don't a, have a the muscle. You are a special circumstance. Because I, because I I didn't do enough somersaults when I was a kid, man. I <laughs> should And I should have done gymnastics. I would have been a freaking crossfitter mm. by now.
0: <laughs> we, we both don't have the best ab genetics. But... Is
1: that a joke, man? Your abs are amazing. You've got the blocks. I've just got like flat and some veins, <laughs> which are cool. But like, it would be cool to have the blocks, you know? Yeah. Anyway, (laughs) literally first world bodybuilding
0: problems.
1: (laughs) Okay, guys. So, you know, I think we are coming up on the end of the questions for today. But the final question we always finish with, you know, one thing that we learned this week.
0: What did you learn, Tiara?
1: What did I learn? Okay, so this probably... Ah... (laughs) this might sound a little bit silly. Okay. But here in Brisbane, this not as
0: silly as knowing about reverse lines.
1: No, no, definitely (laughs) not as silly as that. Um, but this actually might be helpful for some people, but here in Brisbane this past week, it has just been very randomly, very, very cold. You know, like on the weekend I woke up and it was five degrees.
0: Oh, I know what you're going to say.
1: Oh, it was freezing, man. Like, and like I'm from Canada, but I'm a poor excuse for a Canadian. Like I still get really freaking cold. And at at night I was sleeping in like long socks, tights, track pants, a shirt, a sweater, and I had three blankets on me. And I woke up in the morning and obviously every single morning, you know, you have to take your daily weight. Well, you don't have to do anything, but I I weigh myself every single morning, but I'm like freaking bundled up. Right. And, um, I'm like, God damn it. (laughs) Have to weigh myself so obviously i i quickly stripped down hopped on the scale saw my weight and then i put back on my clothes but then i had like this light bulb moment i'm like aha i wonder how much i actually weigh with my clothes on so i weighed myself with my clothes on and i was wearing so many clothes i was 1.1 kilograms heavier and that's <laughs> 1.1 kilograms of clothing that's a lot of clothing but anyway. I worked out a way to weigh yourself consecutively every day during the winter, you know, without freezing your butt off having to strip down in the morning. And that is weigh your clothes, you know. So if you're always going to wear the exact same thing to bed every single night, just know how much that weighs so that when you get up in the morning and weigh yourself, but you what can if just you subtract wear different that. clothes? Well, that's your problem, but I'm just going to wear, I'm going to wear the same clothes. Okay. I'm going to keep this consistent. So you're just going to stink at, stink. I don't stink. (laughs) I wash my, I can wash my pajamas during the day, but like, (laughs) um, but yeah, anyway, that's what I learned this week. How to not freeze my butt off and still weigh myself because. Would you
0: still do that in prep?
1: Oh, well, we're going to be prepping through summer, so, like, I, yeah, you hardly wear anything, you know, you just, you wake up sweating, so, yeah. but the thing is, <laughs> whoa, um, but Jack and I live in a Queenslander, right, so, uh, anyone who lives in Australia would know what a Queenslander is, but... anywhere else in the world essentially our house is up on stilts right and where there's a lot of airflow underneath the house which is amazing in the summer uh but in the winter man it's freaking cold it's
0: it's literally colder in the house than outside Oh
1: man because your feet right because we've got like wooden floorboards and the cold air comes up through the cracks and it's literally it's so cold my feet like (laughs) i touch jack with my feet and he's like get off (laughs) stop. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's freezing in our house. So anyway, hopefully that, hopefully that works out for you guys. Wait, wear your pajamas and then yeah. Mm. Stay warm. Even if
0: I did get cold, I wouldn't do that.
1: Winter is coming. Wear your pajamas. <laughs> okay, Jack, well, what did you learn this week?
0: <laughs> so I, I'm following on from what Tierra said last week, which is about, uh, Sam and her heat. Mm. So I went to the vet with Sam and apparently border collies are late bloomers. So it, instead of like the usual six to seven months it's, it might even be up to a year mm. so that's what I learned
1: and that's good yeah because again we don't want Sam getting preggers but yeah it's it's good that we know that because we it did hit that six month mark and we're like oh god like we really don't want some dog mounting her while she's trying to play fetch or something mm. right so well
0: yeah Sam Sam plays with a dog who is not de sex. so that's Mm -hmm. our main worry
1: yeah exactly and they're completely different species of dogs yeah so i
0: it'd be very weird i'm not
1: i'm not prepared to be a mom to these weird dogs
0: frankenstein dogs
1: (laughs) god they'd be beautiful because i think sam's genetics would predominate but like i don't know how healthy they'd be you know Mm. yeah Anyway, if anyone wants to know, like the dogs would be a border, a purebred border collie bred with a purebred Westie. Mm. So that would just, I don't know. You looked up a photo. Yeah.
0: They look a bit funky. Yeah. But no, they look cute, but they're just like kind of, yeah, different. Yeah. Yeah. Like one's a herding dog. One's a, like it's a, um, it get, they're meant to chase down small game like Mm -hmm. badges and stuff.
1: Yeah. Well, let's avoid it, you know? (laughs) Okay guys. So. That is the end of our 74th episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Again, if you enjoyed it, please feel free to tell your family and friends. Take a screenshot. Post it to your Instagram stories. Tag myself. Tag Jack. Tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians. And as always, we'll catch you next week.
0: See you guys.